Good evening and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's my pleasure to be here with you this evening in the green room of the Veterans Building here in San Francisco, and also with those who may be listening to this evening's program via a podcast on our website. This evening is Wednesday, February 27th, 2013. This Points of View lecture series, along with the Meet the Artist interviews that are held in the Opera House an hour before curtain time of selected performances, and the very popular Ballet 101 series, and our Visiting Scholar series, all of these are produced by the Center for Dance Education, which is directed by Charles Chip McNeil and administrated by Cecilia Beam, the Adult Education Coordinator. As most of you know, I believe these are recorded for future podcasts on the website, and you must go to the San Francisco Ballet website, sfballet.org, where you will find these and so much more. There are lots and lots of videos being posted all the time, and of course, calendar updates and program notes. It's one of the richest websites I've ever played with. So I do encourage you to stay in touch with it on a regular basis. This evening, of course, the focus is Rite of Spring. But I would like to start by a brief mention of the two pieces that precede it on the program. And before I even do that, I don't know how many of you may be subscribers to the ballet's um, e-blast um, or if you follow San Francisco Ballet on Facebook. In any case, <clears throat> last night after the performance, San Francisco Ballet dancer Jennifer Stahl was officially promoted to soloist. Um, some of you may have been here a couple of years ago when she was one of my guests on a panel. Um, I've been following her for years, and I couldn't be happier, and this couldn't be better deserved. So watch for Jennifer throughout the rest of the season with her new title of soloist. Of the other pieces on the program, I just want to call your attention to, um, this was a world premiere last year, Bow choreographed by Mark Morris, to a very interesting score by the Czech composer Martinu. And as always, Mark Morris is motivated by his music, and in this case, by the possibilities of contemporary harpsichord. And... This is an ensemble piece for nine men. And as you can see, it's as very typical Mark Morris. There's nothing expected or typical about it. And this is one of my favorite pictures of all time. And the opening piece on the program, Guide to Strange Places, was a world premiere last year, choreographed by Ashley Page, to music of the same name by composer John Adams. Um, I just want to quote a line from your program notes, which I hope you will read, of course, when you go to the theater, but describes the piece perfectly. Adams said, a chapter 
in his life was dedicated to strange places. It set my imagination off, or to a book he had read, I'm sorry. It set my imagination off. In a sense, all of my pieces are travel pieces, often through, as he says, um, strange places. It's the way I experience musical form. So when you're watching, think that. And then in this ballet, that form is driving, explosive, music that makes your heart jackhammer. Think that when you're watching it. And then Paige says, the ending is incredible, so powerful, like a beast rolling over and like a beast rolling over and dying, or the earth splitting. It gets so savage and earthy and organic. So this is what opens the program. It features four couples and an ensemble. And some absolutely marvelously creative movement. This is the 100th anniversary, this year is the 100th anniversary of the premiere of the ballet and the score for Rite of Spring. Dance companies and symphonies around the world are performing versions of it, and we, of course, are proud to present ours, choreographed by choreographer-in-residence Yuri Posakov. And here are just a few tantalizing images from last night's world premiere. The central female is Jennifer Stahl, who earned her promotion in this role. How many of you are actually going tonight? And you will see Jennifer tonight. Yuri chose to put his women on point. And I'm curious to know a little bit more about that, as I'm hopeful we will learn that over time. And now, this is the best part. I'm very pleased to introduce the main part of this evening's program, which is going to be a really, really exciting and interesting discussion of this extraordinary score written by Stravinsky in 1913. I want to introduce our guests. I'll start with music director and principal conductor Martin West. Martin was appointed to that position in 2005, having been a frequent guest conductor with San Francisco Ballet prior to that. One of my favorite items in Martin's bio is that he studied math at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge. I always tease him about that. Um, Before, he studied at the St. Petersburg Conservatory and um, the London Royal Academy of Music and pretty much needs no further introduction. And then I'm going to leap over to uh, San Francisco Ballet School Administrative Manager and Music Educator, Andy Yanone. Andy um, has been in this position since 2011, but for the previous 10 years she held three positions at the San Francisco Symphony in the Education Department and Electronic Media. Prior to joining the San Francisco Symphony, she actually worked at San Francisco Ballet as registrar in the ballet school, and before that was the program director for an after-school arts program for underserved youth. 
She has taught music both privately and in public schools, holds a Bachelor of Music in Viola Performance from Peabody Conservatory, and then postgraduate studies at Ithaca and Florida State University, has performed professionally in numerous symphony orchestras, chamber orchestras, and ensembles before her career in arts and education, or arts education. And in the center, musicologist Susan Key. Susan specializes in American music. She has spoken and written on a variety of topics, including Stephen Foster, John Cage, that's a spectrum, um, and American music on early radio. That's another lecture. I want to come to that one. She was most recently special projects director at the San Francisco Symphony, where she worked on a variety of projects in media and education. She's also developed educational programs for the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the J. Paul Getty Museum. And her current passion is playing old-time fiddle. That, those introductions should set you up. I know you're going to enjoy this a great deal. And now I'd like to ask them to come and take it away. everyone and thank you for coming. We're very excited to talk this evening about uh, the Rite of Spring. I've been talking about the Rite of Spring for a long time and and, um, brought up this idea of doing a presentation around the Rite of Spring to Cecilia Beam, who was the adult education coordinator many months ago, and she took me up on my offer, and then I talk to colleagues and friends about co-presenting. So um, I'm going to turn it right over to Susan to give us a little background about the piece. Great. Thank you, Andy, and it's great to see all you here tonight. And it's a special honor to share the stage with Andy and with um, Martin West, um, whose orchestra's performance of um, The Rite of Spring is amazing and, and by all accounts was a phenomenal success. So thank you so much, Martin, and we're all looking forward to hearing it tonight. The Rite of Spring was a piece that caused a riot a hundred years ago, and even for us today might feel a little dangerous. Um, I want to just frame the piece for you and just tell you a little bit about the format and what you'll be seeing. We saw a couple of slides earlier. Um, The subtitle of the piece is Pictures of Pagan Russia, and Stravinsky went for inspiration back to um, pagan times. The ballet is in two parts, um, though they're done without a break. The Adoration of the Earth first, and then The Sacrifice. And the storyline, very simple storyline, is in the first part, the uh, pagan tribes are celebrating the awakening of spring after the long winter. And Stravinsky often talked about the, the um, dramatic nature of the early spring in Russia and the, the violence even, as he termed it, from the ice breaking up and the rushing water. So I think you'll, you'll have a real feel for that um, in the first part. And the, the tribes do various dances. At one point they split into two and, and they are rivals. Then in the second half, the sacrifice, um, the group chooses a young woman to be sacrificed, um, and 
she's sacrificed at the very end, the climax. Um, the dancers, and you saw, again, a couple of images of them. There's, of course, a group that represents the tribe. There's a, the soloist, the chosen one, Jennifer Stahl, and then she has a male counterpart. And then the elders, which you saw on the slide, and we'll show another slide with them. Um, the choreographer has chosen a very unusual and um, almost disturbing way of, uh, of, of depicting these elders, and I think you'll find it really interesting and really compelling. Um, it's worth remembering also that Stravinsky's work was not the only work that was shocking during this period. There were a lot of changes in, the, in all facets of life. Um, if you think about the, the uh, radical developments in science and technology, the way people were living their lives in politics. We're right on the eve of World War I here. And of course in the arts, the arts all reflected that. In just one example here, we have on the right um, Picasso's The Young Ladies of Avignon. On the left, um, an African mask. And if you look, of course, especially at the young ladies on the, on the extreme right of this painting, you can see the direct influence. Stravinsky was not the only artist who ironically, somewhat ironically, was finding a modern language from inspiration from pre-modern um, pre-modern sources. Um, now, consider this. You might have attended, if you were a university student, you might have attended the premiere of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet in 1892. And let's say you were a university student. You would have only been in fairly young middle age in your 40s um, 20 years later, when you attended the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. That's how dramatic a break it was. So you would have seen the three ballerinas being snowflakes um, in, in uh, Tchaikovsky's ballet, and then you would have noted the dramatic difference in the three characters on the right here, the heavy costumes. Um, no audiences were used to seeing ballerinas all covered up like that, um, using awkward positions um, and, and feeling the whole thing being primitive and earthy as opposed to beautiful and light and graceful. And down in the, um, in the lower, to your left, um, we have another uh, photograph of tonight's performance and those, the two gentlemen in the back are the elders and they are connected as you can see by this kind of stretchy fabric and then we have the ballerina in the, in the middle. So if that's what you would have seen that was so shocking, consider what you might have heard that was so shocking. If you would have listened to Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers in 1892, you would have heard this. Then, if you had uh, gone to the Rite of Spring, you would have heard a very different kind of dance. This is from the Dance of the Rival Tribes. ¶¶ 
must indeed have seemed like it was overnight to those who were, who were in attendance. Now, just to delve a little bit deeper into the way Stravinsky creates the world of his score. Um, the, the opening, I want to play a little bit of the opening, and, and I want you to think about the way he's creating this kind of primitive soundscape. It's very evocative. It's very primordial. You will hear um, the instruments making uh, what, what really are sound effects of uh, animals and strange nature sounds. So here's a little bit from the opening, from the introduction of the Rite of Spring. Not the very first thing you'll hear, but a couple of minutes into the piece. Uh, the slide that you're looking at is from the original set designs for the 1913 production of The Rite of Spring by Nicholas Rurik. Um, tonight's set is very different. It's a much more stark and, and to our eyes, a much more modern set. But it still quotes from some of the, the natural landscape. You'll see trees, birch trees, because that's what was so, that's what's so meaningful in Russian culture. And I think you definitely still have the sense of this very, um, very pagan landscape. So I'm going to turn it over to Andy and Martin to talk a little bit more about specifically how Stravinsky creates this. Thank you. So I think we're going to play from the very beginning. Kate, if you could. So, Martin, that sounds like a terrifying yet exciting opening bassoon solo. What is, what's going on there? What is Stravinsky doing to set the mood? Well, uh, can you hear me in this? Uh, the first thing he does, actually, is he, the first thing he does is use a folk tune. It was the only time in the whole piece that he admitted to, to uh, borrowing from the folk literature. Actually, the folk tune goes... And he puts it under bassoon, uh, and he—you can't really tell from that recording—but it's, it's in the very, very high register of the bassoon, almost impossible to play. And in fact, in 1913, it was pretty much impossible, and it was deliberately made so in order to make it sound more like the primitive um, uh, wind instruments that the Russians had—the dudki and the jalaika. Uh, which have a very much more nasally tone than the modern instruments we have now. So uh, it, uh, 
nowadays, we, when we hear the uh, bassoon play, we, it sounds beautiful. And tonight, you'll hear Rufus play it in this absolutely marvelous player. You'll think it just sounds wonderful. But in the early days, I want to. It's, it's great if you can just imagine. Instead of it sounding like that, it would sound something like. <laughs> which is actually what the original instruments would sound like. And he, all the way through the opening section, he brings in lots of instruments, nearly all of them in the woodwind section. And uh, interesting additions to the normal orchestra, the, the, the little E-flat clarinet, the bass drum, uh, the bass clarinet, the all, and contrabassoons, which uh, were relatively new instruments in a certain sense, never featured. They were used as supporting instruments, but they were given starring roles, given tunes. The E-flat clarinet giving a wonderful tune, which was extremely rare to hear and so, so striking. But now we, we don't even realize how striking it perhaps was even then. Well, we talk a lot about the choreography on stage. What about the choreography in the pit? How big is the orchestra? Well, yeah, it's, it's an enormous orchestra. It's, it was one of the very biggest orchestras ever assembled and uh, continues to be, actually. There are some pieces that are slightly bigger. But uh, if you watch, if you ever look in our pit, normally we'll have something like two flutes, two clarinets, two bassoons, uh, two oboes. And, and, and Stravinsky asked for five of each uh, and continues that throughout the rest of the orchestra with five trumpets and, uh, and a, a number of um, percussion players as well to, to complete the complement. We actually have uh, 79 players in the pit for this mm-hmm. particular piece, which is way the biggest we've ever had. So if we come to Nutcracker, what size orchestra are we seeing we, there? Uh, we have about 60 for that. Mm-hmm. So we, and the, all the additions are within the woodwinds and the brass and the percussion section. So. And then the first piece on the program is the John Adams, Guide mm-hmm. to Strange Places. What is the connection between that piece and the Rite of Spring? Well, I think, um, I mean, it's a long story, but Stravinsky's, the Rite of Spring was so revolutionary in so many ways, the way he used harmonies and the way he used rhythms. I know we're going to talk about that later, uh, that every composer ever since has been affected by it and influenced by it um, and John's just one of those many people if you listen, fortunately we're not listening the right way around, we should listen to the right of spring then listen to the Adams to see where, where he might have not borrowed in, in any sense but been influenced by it so the last five or six minutes of the John Adams piece has an incredible rhythmic intensity and difficulty which would never have happened had the right of spring not mm-hmm. existed What are the particular challenges for the orchestral musicians in this evening's performance? Uh, well, I mean, uh, any piece which involves very difficult rhythms is always a challenge. Uh, that John also writes extremely difficult music, technically very difficult music. You'll hear in the first well, minute of the music there's already a zillion notes flying by. Uh, so just, to, just getting the notes out is hard enough. Uh, when, when we play it in a concert hall, it's, it's one thing. And then in the pit, we have a very long and narrow pit. So the people who would normally be able to hear each other in the concert hall usually can't hear each other in the pit. So it makes it even more hard for them to be able to play really as a cohesive group, mm. which they do, they do, but it just makes it another challenge that we have to face. And face it with um, gusto you do. So here is a copy of one page of manuscript. 
And I'm going to play for you the opening excerpt of the Dance of the Adolescence, which is really the first real dance that's going on. And it is, of course, the, um, the women of the San Francisco Ballet. And please, please pay very close attention to um, the music because you are going to be quizzed on this in just a minute. <laughs> All right. going on there? <laughs> uh, well, what's going on? First of all, uh, one of the things that Stravinsky does uh, creates this an, an incredibly strange chord out of just very simple, simple things, but completely revolutionary. Uh, earlier, uh, people had uh, experimented with a thing called bitonality. Everybody knows a nice chord. Or you could have another nice chord. And then Stravinsky had the he was one of the first people to really experiment with this very famous excerpt from a ballet he'd written two years early. If you came a couple of years ago to Petrushka, you'll recognize that. It's, it's, it's so famous, it's actually called the Petrushka Chord now because it was, uh, it, it, cause he, he invented the whole thing. And he starts with a, he starts with a very nice chord. Um, watch, how should it? It means nothing. What does it mean? So, what does he do? First of all, he puts it down in a very low octave, so it becomes very earthy. But he does something even more extraordinary. Instead of having the bass chord, he changes the the, the bottom to a, a whole semitone different, and he puts the same chord on the top. So you have two chords going at once, which gives this extraordinary. And he just repeats it over and over and over and over and over again. So you, it's like you're being hammered on the head with something. <laughs> and then we take a look at the rhythm there. What's going well, on with the rhythm? Well, the interesting thing is there is no rhythm, is there? That's, that's the great thing. But, but, it, but in order to give you the feeling of, of almost um, chaos, I would say, he puts in accents uh, on, on irregular beats. And we're going to become the musicians of the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra. All right. So the first thing I'd like everyone to do together is follow along with at, at the very top. So you see the numbers one through eight. We're going to clap together, both sides of my group here. All right. And uh, we're going to do that four times, just as... Just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm going to give you a, a preparatory count. So everybody get your clapping hands up. You ready? One, two, three, go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Stop. Excellent. Okay. Are they hired, Martin? Not yet. Okay, not yet. Now, I'm going to have this half of the group keep that steady pulse of eight. The second half of the group over here, you see those larger bolded numbers. Those are those accented beats that you heard. So I'm going to demonstrate for you first. 
So you guys over here pay careful attention because you are the soloist. These guys are going to be the accompaniment. You're the soloist. It goes like this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 You got it? Yeah? Easy. It is easy. Martin, do you want to conduct us? Sure. All right. One, yeah, I could, I could, I can play along. Oh, no. even better. I can conduct those, please, more, but if I just keep, All right. keep it steady with okay. So I'm going to get us started. Susan, will you off. be in charge of this side? All right. We got the easy part now, but just wait. Okay, you guys, are you ready? This side? Ready? Get your clapping hands up. All right. One, two, ready, go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. How'd you do? We did great. Pretty good. You guys did well over there. Should we switch it up? Okay. Let's do it one more time. Let's try a little quicker. A little. They were so good. All right. All right. Okay. So So you guys are just going to play straight claps. Susan, do you want to lead them or do you want to... We're, do the complicated. Oh no, we'll do the complicated. We're right. ready for it, right? All right. One, two, ready, go. One, two, three, four, five, six. Excellent. Martin, are they hired now? They're getting there. They're getting there. <laughs> All right. Terrific. So this is what the music looks like. And so if you were just playing steady eighth notes, which are those, um, I have a pointer here, these notes. So those were, you were going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then you had the accents notated on the music. Additionally, Stravinsky augmented the instrumentation by adding additional notes here. So on those accented beats, you, he brought in additional instruments to give emphasis. So that's what it would look like. Um, and in fact, the string players are also doing some calisthenics. If any of you have been um, talking with someone who, who um, has told you a very sad tale, and then you said to them, oh, I'm going to play my violin for you, right? That's how, how you play. But these violinists here, these string players, they are working. They are going down, 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 down. So they're using a lot of energy. They have their own choreography going on while they're playing. Speaking of choreography, um, in the Nijinsky original choreography, all those accents were done... With the, with the group throwing their arms up in the air. And you wanted people to kind of pay attention to what, what the choreographer is doing tonight with Absolutely. those Absolutely. So our adolescents are doing flicks with their feet in and out. So you want to really take a look at that. Here's more manuscripts. So, Mark, can you talk a little bit about Stravinsky's challenge with notation. <laughs> well, you, you can see he had a... That's a lot of working out there. He crosses out many, many, um, many chords which he didn't like. Uh, but 
When it got to, to, towards the end, the sacrificial dance, which is perhaps one of the more complicated rhythmical bits of the, of the, uh, of the piece, he even said himself he didn't really... He knew what he wanted to, to have, to, to, to play. He didn't know how to write it. And actually, you can see uh, there are very various... Uh, different versions of the scores that he wrote from the original 1913 he redid it in 1921 and 1947 and 61 there's a new edition and all these and there's a four-handed piano version there's a a two-handed version that he he wrote and was lost and a lot of these ones have different ways of writing out the rhythm so the sacrificial dance uh, you can see just about here he he writes an eighth note, so he writes a five, a five bar, so one, two, three, four, um, ba, um, ba, um, which is five, five, eight. But then, in the, vision, then the final score that we're using from, he split that into two bars, a two and a three. He also wrote it in the sixteenth, not in, not in eighth. And there's all these different versions. So he was having a real struggle inventing the new language, as it were, to write down in order to be able to, people to be able to play it. And in fact, it was so difficult that... Uh, that People really couldn't play it for a very long time. Um, it's, I mean, they, they reckon probably around about the 1940s people could start really playing it. Pierre Monteux, who did the original uh, uh, performance of it as a conductor, had 19 rehearsals with the orchestra. Well, nowadays that's unheard of. That's more than we have for the entire season. So, uh, and he, he claimed himself he didn't really understand it and, and couldn't play it. So. Um, there was a struggle on everybody's half, and it's still difficult. It's still difficult to read. Well, we're going to break apart this idea of complex rhythm and pulse and meter for you. So the first thing we're going to do is go back to our clapping. And I'm sure most of you know what a waltz is. A waltz is in three. It's a simple meter. So it would go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Kate, could you pull up our waltz? So let's start clapping. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Okay, now you're hired. Now you're hired. Yeah, enough of that easy stuff. So, in in uh, the excerpt that Martin was talking about, we go to something more complicated, which is this idea of multimeters. So we're first going to take it very slowly. So I've outlined here what you're going to clap, and as you can see, it's a series of threes, twos, threes and then um, fours. So it's going to sound something like this. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Okay, can we do that? Okay. I'm going to go like this. I'm going to give you three for nothing. It'll go one, ready, go. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Let's do that again, just a little faster. One, ready, go. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Great. So, Martin, what did Stravinsky do with this? Uh, he made it a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> First of all, he took away some of the ones, which gives you less... Uh, well, actually, yeah, he put most of the accents on two. 
But he also took away some of the ones so that you had to come in on a two, which is very difficult. So the first thing, step one is going to be taking away the ones. So it's going to sound something like this. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. All right? So we're going to clap it. We're going to go a little slower. How about that? Um, I'll give you three for nothing. One, two, go. One, two, three, one, two, one. Two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Did everybody get that? Can we do it a little faster? Just a little faster? And Andy, do you want us to, to not clap at all except on the bolded numbers? Yeah. So anybody clapping on a one, for example, will not make the cut for the orchestra? Is that uh, what we're saying? That's a, Yeah, I guess that's a good audition technique. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay. One, ready, go. Uh-uh. Good. Uh, we get it better than that. All right. Do you want to conduct us? Why doesn't someone shout? The, I'll shout the ones. Okay. Okay. So we have some rhythm going on. Ready? Okay. So one, ready, go. One, 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 one. Excellent. So is that what you're doing when you're conducting? Basically, I'm giving the ones. I have it, I have it easy. <laughs> okay. Now we're going to add a third layer of complication. Because the majority of the orchestra is playing the twos, but we have some soloists that you'll hear tonight playing on the ones. Low instruments, bass and um, timpani, I believe. So do I have any volunteers to be a soloist tonight on the ones? This side. I I volunteered them. This side, all of them. Oh, the whole side. Yeah. All right. Uh Okay, good. You guys ready for it? Safety numbers. So you're only going to play the red ones. You're only going to clap on the red ones. And Martin, are you going to do the same thing? Yeah, I'll do my ones. Yeah. You'll do your I'm ones? Good, I'm good at ones. Okay, you guys, we're the twos, and then at the end, the two, three, four. Okay, you ready? Same thing. I'm going to give you three for nothing. One, ready, go. One. 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 Uh, need what to do it again. We need to really hear anything there. <laughs> All right, let's go just a little slower. You, you guys over here on this side. All right, one ready go. One, 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 one. That was much better. What do you think, Martin? Can we Any do it better? a little faster? Yeah, I think so. Okay. One ready go. One, 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 one. Yeah? Now you know what the orchestra's going through when they're playing this excerpt. That's, uh, that's five bars of, of about five minutes yeah, of music. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Kate, why don't you go ahead and play that? about that rhythm and all of those rests that captures our attention, gives us anxiety, and leads to exciting choreography. Well, yeah, as you see, 
uh, clapping to a waltz is, is easy. Clapping to this is easy. It's just it's constant. But what uh, Stravinsky broke things up into very small chunks, which would do, it's almost equivalent like being in a car and you're on a roller coaster where you're thrown because you're expecting something to happen and you don't get it, so you get whiplash and then you're looking in. It's it's that constant unknown of what's going on, and it's 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 almost random. I mean, there are def- there's definitely he takes certain packets of information and repeats them. Then he'll repeat them with a with a twist every time. So even though you think oh I'm getting in a groove, then he'll suddenly change it so that even even professional musicians who play it many many times, the orchestra rehearsed it many many times. It's it's never comfortable because you. It's almost impossible to remember. It's like learning a, a gibberish poem and getting every single syllable right. It's just very difficult. And how are the dancers dealing with these complex rhythms? Yeah, very well. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, Yuri was very clever. He, he chose his moments when to do that. So, um, you know, uh, I'm, I forget what happens exactly at the beginning of the sacrificial dance, but uh, he... He was clever enough to just take a few bits and get the dancers really, really focus on those and other bits. He would go through the music, and in fact, that's what Stravinsky uh, expected. One of, the, one of the problems Stravinsky had with, with uh, Nijinsky's choreography was it was too literal to the music, and he didn't expect it to be like that. Thank you. So this is a photo from um, the sacrificial dance towards the end. And as you can see, the dancers, the ladies are all wearing these very sort of sheer, flowing, knee-length sheaths. Um, And underneath is sort of a nudish leotard. The guys are bare-chested, and then they have on sort of earth-toned pants, with uh, green boots, and then our lead man has brown boots. And the, the choreography is very earthy. It's very down. It, it is really a very reflective of the music, which, which feels grounded. It feels within the earth. Uh, what's your take on the choreography, Martin? Uh, what's my take on it? It's, it's great. It's very exciting. It is it's, exciting. It's very... It's, it's very um, well, it is very, it's very sexual as well, actually, I have to say. I shouldn't say that, should I? But I yes. I it's it very, is. It, is, it is erotic, especially the opening. You know, I mean, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's designed to be pagan. It, I mean, it is, it is what it is. Um, the, I just always think it's funny. I don't know, it's not often quoted, but when the riots that, that accompanied the first uh, uh, performance, when Diaga left the impresario, was left, left the theatre, he was heard to mutter, just what I wanted. <laughs> He wanted to shock people. And well, I think the, the publicity value of a riot was certainly yeah. something that, yes. that um, Diagola was thrilled with. I, I want to ask you a couple of questions before we have mm. the opportunity to open it up to the audience. So um, here's our, our dear friend, Pierre Monteux, who was the conductor on the opening of uh, the riot. <laughs> My one desire was to flee that room and find a quiet corner in which to rest my aching head. Martin, is that how you feel at the end of the night? <laughs> no, I just want a glass of wine. Okay. <laughs> that, Which, was after, that was after the, uh, the first time he'd heard it on, played on the piano, wasn't it? With Stravinsky and... Yeah. Was it Debussy was playing as well? It was a very think, yeah. famous cast. It was yeah. great. What's your favorite section of The Rite of Spring? Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, for me, it's the most terrifying bit. Uh, it's terrifying 
both to listen to and as to conduct. Um, and after the adolescence dance, which we practiced at the beginning, it suddenly it just builds and builds and builds, and it goes headlong into a section called the, um, the ritual abduction, where you can just you can hear where the, the terror of what it must be like to be abducted, knowing you're just going to be killed and sacrificed. It's uh, there's whoops of joy from the from the horns. That it's the the rhythm is uh, incredibly complicated and so insistent, and it's like people are piling in on top of each other to get their say, to have their joys. It's it's incredibly frightening, I think. Well, let's hear a little bit of it. Builds the excitement, he gets higher and higher, the horns get higher and higher, the roof and higher. The drums are beating, it's just it's, it's extraordinary. It's so loud in the pit, it's great. And it's so loud actually out in the hall it's as incredibly well. It's, loud. it's really thrilling to be in it's the like, It's like a, it's just uh, being a jet engine, it's so fast. It, everything's going by, by the wind, it's, it's incredible. Susan, any final thoughts from you? No, I'd, I'm curious to see whether our audience is, has questions and comments. And I don't know whether anybody saw the performance last night, but it'd be interesting to know what you thought of it. Yes, ma'am. Yes, we all we all wondering that actually, because I think this is probably the first writer spring I've seen or know about which, where the dancers dance on point. Because, of course, they didn't have point shoes in pagan Russia, as far as I know. But, you know, it's interesting. um, I'm not a ballet expert by any means, um, but Mary and I were chatting about that. Thank you.